Hey, thanks for sharing, listeners. If you are listening to this real time, like this is the brand new episode this week uh, for you, we are 10 days away from our first dating in recovery um, intensive retreat. And uh, there's still time to join us. We have a few seats left and uh, we'd love to have you. So reach reach out to us if you're interested. Our website is onelayerdeeper.com. That's O-N-E, layerdeeper.com. And if you're listening to this later, and thinking, oh man, I could really use a dating and recovery intensive with Jackie and John and Amy. That would be awesome. We have more coming up. Um, so again, go to the website and check and see when the date of the next one is. We'd love to have you out there. Enjoy the show. This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's paths with an S. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P. This is John T. Today on our uh, podcast, we have a returning guest, um, Alex Katahakis, and uh, we know that people enjoyed the previous episode that we had. I think we were talking about the Me Too movement mm-hmm. in that one, uh, and with this one, you've you've had a recently released book um, on sexual reflections, and so we wanted to get her back on and talk about this book that we've been able to look at and preview and start to work with our clients. Yeah, and Alex... Sexual Reflections is not her first groundbreaking book. She's an award-winning author um, with her book, uh, Mirror of Intimacy. She also wrote Erotic Intelligence, Mm -hmm. which my clients love. Um, And then Sexual Addiction is Affect Dysregulation, which is more, I think that's more a book for therapists. Um, But uh, just groundbreaking, mind-blowing on um, kind of the theory around why people turn to sex um, as an addiction. Right. so, and she's also the founder and the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex um, in the LA area. So welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie and John. Yeah, so uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the workbook, Sexual Reflections, um, a workbook for designing and celebrating your healthy sex plan. And this, this represents, I think, a very significant corner turned in the sex addiction treatment community where the focus is not just on what do we stop and how fast do we stop it, but really um, the focus turning to what is healthy sex and how do we celebrate that and how do we get that to come out in a very individual, authentic way in recovery. Right. Well, you know, I um, like to give some context for this. When Patrick Carnes first put sexual addiction on the map around 1983, he was really, and this is no secret, he's very public about this, looking at his own compulsive sexual behaviors and trying to mm-hmm. stop them. And he had worked with therapists and you know other people and nothing was really working for him. And then he got this idea of what would happen if I use the 12-step model 
um, and really fashioned a model for sexual addiction the same way people who have food addiction mm -hmm. fashion their model. So he took this circle plan from Overeaters Anonymous and he created a circle plan for sex addiction. So that was the genesis of that. And his focus was on stopping these behaviors. And he was one person. Um, he didn't have an army of you know sexual health practitioners uh, like right. we have today in the CSAC community. Um, so it was a very thin slice. It was about arresting the problematic behaviors. He wasn't thinking about the family, the mm -hmm. partners, about healthy sexuality, about mm -hmm. all these different things that we think about today because there's so much more brain power today. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I respected early on about Dr. Carnes was that his model was very open at the top. It wasn't this closed mm -hmm. insular system that can be quite cultish, actually. Yeah. It was very open and broad-based. And today we have over 2,000 sex addiction therapists that are bringing in all sorts of creative modalities and applying mm -hmm. it to this problem. Right. So where the shortcoming was in the field was that it was an abstinence-based model of, you know, stopping the destructive behaviors. And people were trying to have sex again, but there was really no roadmap for it. And mm -hmm. erotic intelligence was my first crack in 2010 of trying to help direct people in the direction of recognizing that sex was a healthy celebratory act, not this dour, painful, sometimes trauma-repetitive act. And um, as time went on and the community was demanding more specifics, that's when um, I came up with the idea for Sexual Reflections, which is a real workbook to help people tease out what they do and don't like sexually and what they mm -hmm. do and don't want and who they are sexually. Right? Mm -hmm. And I, I would note here, it's, it's not a workbook like the ones that you've worked in to stay sober or to get sober. Right. Um, it's incredibly evocative and it's really experientially based. It's mm -hmm. not just answering questions yeah. and making your brain go places. It's really moving your whole body and your emotions there too. Right. And that was by design because I thought, how can I create a workbook, which is, you know, typically cognitive. It's what are you thinking into something that's including a full body experience, which is what sex is. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard people say that sex is love in motion. I think Gwen mm -hmm. um, Gordon says that. Um, and, also, with people that have been um, dissociated, compartmentalization is an aspect of dissociation. And to ask um, someone who's a recovering addict of any stripe, drugs, alcohol, gambling, you name it, um, even someone who's a compulsive overeater, what they think is a good idea about what they should eat, um, or how much money they think would be okay to spend, or how much sex they should have, mm -hmm. um, is a dicey proposition because right. the left brain will always confabulate. It will always fill in the blanks inappropriately. So when we start to track what's happening in the body and what does it feel like when I say I want to engage in that sexual act, is my body saying yippee or mm -hmm. is my stomach feeling kind of sick right now, which is an indicator that probably not a good idea for me at least at this juncture maybe you know down the road it will be but today it's probably not a good idea mm -hmm. and that's a different kind of knowing and i think a more integrated kind of knowing yeah right i think it really puts the it really puts the person back in the driver's seat of their own sexuality yes. um correct what's right or wrong for them is really based on the information their body's giving them not what a sponsor's saying or a therapist is saying or what their or a partner. Or a partner. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
Yeah, and I think another criticism that sex addiction therapists get is that we provide, we create, or we um, perform these erotic-ectomies, um, yeah. that we are excising somebody's erotic template, which couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. We're looking, I think, in a very sophisticated way at whether that erotic template was born out of molestation, um, and it leaves the person feeling demoralized because demoralization means doing something and then hating yourself for it, mm-hmm. or whether it's something that's more aligned with what's true for them in terms of what brings their body pleasure, what's excitatory, um, what aligns with their value system. So we don't have any kind of moral judgment about sex and sexuality as sex Mm -hmm. addiction therapists. We're looking to help steward and guide people to their best sexual self, to their sexual potential, really. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that this workbook at least is a blueprint for people to do that. I think people are going to use the workbook in very creative ways, and maybe ways that I never even thought about, but at least it's a plan to deviate from. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and that's what I like, because you introduce um, in the beginning of this workbook, your KIST model, mm-hmm. right? Um, K-I-S-T, kind of sounds like KIST, but spelled right. differently. Very clever. Um, and it adds to uh, the World Health Organization definition of sexuality, um, but really kind of says, let's look at this from a holistic perspective. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's not just look at kind of maybe the mechanisms of sexuality or how it works or what you like, or let's look at kind of the big picture of that. And so that people are then making more informed decisions um, about their sexuality. And that doesn't mean that it can't be hot. It doesn't mean that it can't be right. um, exciting. It's just awareness versus mm-hmm. kind of this drive that really isn't understood, like you said, may lead to um, really some feelings of yuck afterwards or self-loathing afterwards. Right. Right. And I think, you know, I talk about owning your sexuality rather than having it owning you. Right. Uh, one thing slightly nuanced I want to correct about what you said, Jackie, is that um, my, my model is not building on the World Health Organization's definition. It's the World Health Organization's definition is the foundation of my model. Okay. Um, and that, that global statement is just a statement of um, what uh, sort of a statement of how we see healthy sexuality, but there is no um, specific statement that anybody's issued saying this is healthy sexuality. Mm-hmm. We don't know what mm-hmm. that is because it's different for me, for you, for John, right. for our neighbors, and it's different at different phases of our lives. So we're not attempting to create some um, moral template for what right. healthy sex is by right. any means. We're saying this is elastic, it's open, um, mm-hmm. it's really an exploration. It changes from decade to decade, sometimes from year to year, yes. depending mm-hmm. on where we are and which decade we're in. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I mean, all of this is um, aspirational and it's experimental. Right. You know, there's a, um, Pamela Madsen is actually giving a webinar today at noon for Center for Healthy Sex about consent. And what is the meaning of consent? And when does what happens when consent changes in the middle of the sexual act? Mm-hmm. And how often does that happen to us where we think we're, we're agreeing to something, it sounds good, and then we get into it and we're like, what did I get myself into? Yeah. Right, right. Even if you consent to a meal that you order at a restaurant and you taste it and you're like, oh, this is not what I thought right. it was going right. to be. Mm-hmm. Or you're looking at the person across from you and you're thinking, I want that. <laughs> 
Right. I didn't want what I got. That's right. But even in the sexual act, you can consent to saying, I want to do this. And then you're in the middle of it feeling like, uh oh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I like this so much. Right. So these are fluid shifting dynamics, sex mm -hmm. and sexuality. And even if somebody is engaging in fetishistic behavior and their addiction, we do ask them to put that aside for a period of time, maybe, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, six months, a year, but it's also the person's decision. And then what sexual reflections is asking is, can we weave that aspect back in from mm -hmm. a new vantage point? Right. Is it something that you still find arousing? If it create shame what kind of shame is it you know because the word shame gets bandied about and it gets it's been used against me multiple times um but there are many iterations of shame mm -hmm. there's toxic shame right and then there's also shame because i was told early on that it wasn't okay by my family by my religion by my culture and yet is it really not okay for me mm -hmm. right so there, and then, and that arousal is going to be wrapped up with that. So that's one of the questions in the workbook is, what are you noticing in your body? If it's shame, what kind of shame is it? And yeah. what's the shame about? And is it our job as therapists to um, help eradicate that shame or normalize that shame? Mm -hmm. you know, which is it going to be? And how do we work collaboratively with our clients to help them figure that out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I love that. I love that concept of its experimentation. And I want you to talk a little more about the KISS model because whenever I tell a client, you need to experiment with that, um, especially as they're in uh, sex addiction recovery, they look at me like, uh, no, I, I will not be experiment experimenting as Wild West. Like that's where I get into trouble. So talk a little more about that model. Um, okay. What are the guidelines? Well, the acronym stands for my last name, Katahakis, Integrative Sex Therapy Model. And there are five dimensions to this model. The first one is the physical dimension. So these all are in the workbook also where we're asking people to really understand their bodies. You know, what do you know about how your genitals function? What do you know about your sexual arousal cycle? In other words, what turns you on? What gets you up over the arousal threshold? Um, what do you know about your partner's um, arousal threshold also and any uh, sexually transmitted infections or diseases you have and how do those impact your sexuality um, or how does the process of a your aging body impact your sexual arousal mm -hmm. threshold? So we want people to be familiar with their genitals. So many people are not. I mean, men are handling their genitals all day, every day. Mm -hmm. um, every time they urinate, they have to touch their genitals. Women do not. Oftentimes women right. don't even know what their vaginal canal looks like, much less their labia or their clitoris. And we want people to be conversant in this language because even the act of saying these bodies Body parts helps to so in some people it will evoke shame and so the therapists can work with that so that the person starts to recognize that you know their vaginal area is no different in some ways than their feet because mm -hmm. feet have erogenous zones to them also and we have no problem with massaging them getting pedicures every week touching them adorning them putting shoes on them but we don't want to touch our genitals mm -hmm. so the physical component is about making friends with your body and your sexual body parts. Um, the next dimension is what? I don't have it in front of me. I want to say it's the, um, the affective. Um, um. <clears throat> Sorry, one second. Cognitive as well. That's the cognitive, thank yeah. you. Um, it's about thinking about, you know, what are your thoughts about sex and sexuality? Um, how do you think about it? 
um, what are the perhaps even um, messages that you got about it and can you relate to a lover with appropriate boundaries so can the client know when to say no can they hear no from the other person um, also we want to make sure they're not violating their own bodies or their own dignity and not taking sexual advantage of another person through physical or psychological manipulation mm -hmm. um, cognitively we want people who are single to have a dating plan which is also in the workbook and it's expanded from the dating plan and erotic intelligence mm -hmm. uh, or a sexual health plan if they're in relationship and can the client take deliberate actions to set the stage for the kind of sexual experience he or she wants? So are they thinking about sex and sexuality? How are they thinking about it? Are they thinking appropriately about it um, for them and whatever their situation is, single or, you know, in a relationship? Um, so actually, it's the affective dimension that follows the physical, but it doesn't matter that much. So it's physical, affective, cognitive. Um, the affective dimension is that the client doesn't feel guilty or shameful about sex and sexual behavior. And it's not reenacting previous trauma that induces dissociative feelings. So there isn't a feeling of a loss of sense of self. Now, this is a funny thing because sex, by definition, is somewhat of a mild to moderately dissociative state. And people who engage in BDSM play are looking for that dissociative place. They want mm -hmm. to be in that place of sort of bliss and out of body. Um, but there are deliberate um, conversations and actions that are set up prior to those experiences. What we were looking for are people that have been so dissociated because, you know, in some cases they're suffering from PTSD, that people are using their bodies and hurting them, especially female sex and love addicts, in ways that are replicating their trauma that is not doing anything but further cementing those dissociative patterns and those adaptive strategies. So that's another one of those nuanced lines. That's in part why this book is meant to be done with a therapist, so that mm -hmm. people can tease through these things in a very specific way, that they're not just broad strokes. And, and I think that's really important to note here. This is not a workbook for you to pick up and just do in isolation. Um, I, I think you really miss the gift that's in this is working through this with another person that you trust right help you tune into your body and help you kind of highlight those thoughts um yeah yeah i mean i think people will buy this workbook and do it by themselves but they mm -hmm. won't get the full impact of it they'll get the cognitive right. impact of mm -hmm. it but not the visceral as much mm -hmm. so part of that is that we want people to learn how to track and name impulses in their body and that they use these impulses to guide them in a very individualized way about what feels right and wrong for them and we can't know that as therapists we can only trust what's happening from the body um, that's sitting in front of us. Uh -huh. um, also, the, the client can communicate and receive communications about thoughts and feelings, um, that they can be intimate, vulnerable, and if they want to be in a long-term relationship. And we want people to be excited about sex that feels pleasurable and that restores a sense of dignity um, rather than something that feels like it's tearing them apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's so important um, not to get off the KISS model, but to, to just kind of highlight that as this workbook kind of guides them into, I think for so many people, we just kind of stumble into sexuality um, right. from a number of different <clears throat> resources that are not always helpful to developing sexuality. And so to be able to really 
um, feel and intellectually understand your sexuality better, have more awareness, and to allow that to guide you in the moment right. um, is such a, it, it's, it's unfortunately, it's sad that it's such a unique or like, that's a novel idea. Mm -hmm. And wow, what happens if we approach sex through that lens versus just letting people kind of stumble into it? Yeah, it's like I have a body and it's designed to give me pleasure because the sole purpose of the clitoris is pleasure. It doesn't do anything else. Right, no other function. Oh, it does. <laughs> um, and so it's like, oh, I have this thing that makes my body feel really good. How come nobody told me about this? Mm -hmm. They told me about every other part of my body. I spoke to a young woman yesterday who was teaching in a teen program in a state where um, the directive was abstinence from sex. So the way they taught this which was really, you know, subversive was that they said to the teens, the best way not to get pregnant, and of course, it's a, it's a not pregnant, not disease model. It's not a pleasure model. Mm -hmm. the, the best way to do this is don't have sex. But if you're going to have sex, let's talk about what that's going to be like. Mm -hmm. So that's how they taught the, quote, abstinence model. Right. Um, do it, but you, if you do do it, these are the things that you should be on the lookout for. And they did some very clever things by um, letting the kids ask questions and put them in a box anonymously, and then they would draw the questions and answer the questions. Oh, okay. Um, great way for the kids to be able to ask questions that they're not, quote, supposed to ask. But right. that's, that's in our culture, and it's so bizarre uh, that we're in the year of 2018, approaching 2020, and that we still don't have the freedom to educate and talk about our sexual pleasure. Right. And the more we talk about our sexual pleasure, I believe the less sexual addiction and compulsivity or problematic sexual behavior, whatever you want to call it, there will be, mm -hmm. and probably a lot less um, sexual abuse as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all of that goes underground when it's not talked about appropriately. Um, and so that uh, brings us to the interpersonal or interpsychic aspect of the model, which is that the client can comfortably talk to their partner about a range of sexual preferences, as well as their health status. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not embarrassing to say, I masturbate, or that these are the sexual things that I like doing. Um, and that they also have a range of preferred sexual experiences. So their sex life is not, you know, just one thing, which is rigid and sort of shut down. Mm -hmm. And that the person is open to the discovery of different personal truths during sexuality and exploring different erogenous zones. And that um, they think they're, they, they have a felt sense that their sexual preferences are congruent um, with their gender identity also. So we want people to be solid and confident in their sexuality and have the ability to communicate it to another person without shame. And just saying, this is who I am. I have brown hair. I have brown eyes. Um, you know, I'm tall. I'm not mm -hmm. petite. If you want to be with a petite person, I can't help you with that. Right. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to feel shame or make excuses for it. Yeah. Right? And only walk around in flats because I love high heels. I can't contort myself in that right. way. This is who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the final dimension is the spiritual dimension, where the clients made a conscious choice about their spiritual preferences, meaning that just sex and, and spirituality are similar in that way, because oftentimes, you know, we are brought into a certain faith in our family of origin, and that's just handed to us, and um, we grow up in it, and we don't ever question it. 
Mm -hmm. um, until we start to question it. And just like we grow up in a family where sex isn't talked about and we don't question it until we start to question it. So mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for people to have some grounding in their spirituality, even if they're agnostic or atheistic. Right. It's important to say, I am an atheist. I don't believe in a higher power. There's a sense of knowing oneself and that this is that the person's come to this through some sort of collaborative or critical thinking, whether it was a teacher or a mentor or a therapist or, you know, a priest or a 12-step meeting, uh -huh. whatever it is. Um, and that these beliefs add to the spiritual um, experience in positive ways. So the client's not experiencing sexual shame or guilt due to their spiritual or religious beliefs, because that will kill sexuality faster mm -hmm. than anything, because there's this deep conflict going on. Whereas, you know, I'm going to go to hell if I do this, but boy, is my body aroused by it. I must be flawed. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, or, or that, that starts a deep seated shame um, that, that leads to something's wrong with my sexuality or I'm sexually perverse or right. Right. That then also is going to kill uh, sexuality and relationships. And there's also a danger in that, that people that aren't sex addicts will get called sex addicts. Mm -hmm. And that's where sex addiction therapists really get pummeled. Mm -hmm. Because there's a belief that, you know, if somebody does anything out of the sexual norm, which is such a strange and old-fashioned construct of sex addiction therapists, that um, if we um, ascribe to anything outside of heterosexual vanilla sex, then we're going to call all of that sex addiction, which is mm -hmm. absolutely preposterous. Right. Um, and, you know, really offensive about our clinical skills as well and our, our willingness for nuance. So we don't want spiritual beliefs to um, be subtractive or colonizing in, in any way. We want them to be additive to people's sexual experiences mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that people can start to make a connection between the spiritual and the sexual um, and they can deepen their sexual spiritual life. And this is where some of the neo-tantric practices come into play also, uh, where people are deliberately breathing together and making eye contact and, in, and invoking the divine and bringing the divine into their sexuality. Um, and people can do that of all faiths if um, they're interested in sort of experimenting in those realms. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just a cognitive model or emotional or interpersonal. Um, it's, it's an integrated model or strictly mm -hmm. a spiritual model. It's mm -hmm. saying bring all of the dimensions of right. your humanity and yourself into your sexuality so that you're having a full-bodied, full spiritually, you know, oriented experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've crafted a way in each exercise for the person to really start experiencing that. So if you could, would you talk a little bit about what your process was like to, to come up with these highly evocative exercises that really target, you know, these aspects of our sexual story, our sexual self? Well, it's hard to say, Jonathan, because this was one of the most creative things I've ever done, and I wrote it in two days. Oh, no wow. way. <laughs> it was one of those just, you know, experiences I've heard about before from writers. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the fourth book I've written on my own. No, maybe third book. Well, Mirror of Intimacy was a collaboration, um, but it's still nonetheless a fourth book. And um, it just flowed in the way that, you know, people talk about, you know, channeling something. Mm -hmm. um, and Mirror of Intimacy was quite like that also. But I was just so on fire when I wrote this that there was a sense of play to it. Mm -hmm. So I almost can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. But um, I think um, 
what it was was that when I started to think about um, the right brain, how do you take a cognitive um, modality, which is a book, and a left brain learning, and try to evoke emotions and imagination and kind of get the left brain out of the way. And one way we do that is through art mm -hmm. because you can't draw or color and be thinking about it too much. It actually kind of turns that part of the brain off a little bit because we're more interested in colors and shapes and then our body kind of starts to move with the coloring. And so I thought about projective tests from psychology that the Rorschach is highly projective and mm -hmm. the TAT, the thematic apperception tests. And I thought, what if these images weren't right on the nose? And what if they were all different? And what if they just were evocative in some ways, like, wow, that's ugly, or that's kind of weird, or that sort of grosses me out, or that's really, you know, looks erotic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as I showed it to people before it was published, everybody projected different things on all of those images. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is exactly... Perfect what I wanted it to be. And so in the act of coloring them in, and then people are asked to write a story that has a beginning, middle, and end um, about a memory or a poem or a dream that the image evokes. Mm -hmm. And that is really rich, unconscious material. Now we're sort of in the world of Jungian psychology mm -hmm. um, that allows the therapist and the client to sort of riff in a jazz improvisation kind of way about, you know, what did this image mean to you? And why did you pick those colors? And tell me, read your story to me. And, and the therapist can say, wow, you know, that really makes me feel this way. So together we're free associating. And I believe, you know, that sort of metaphor and emotion and beauty will lead people to their sexual truth. Mm. Um, it will also slow the process of the workbook down because it may have people hit on deep pieces of trauma they didn't know were there. Mm. You know, the time my school teacher shamed me or said something sexually inappropriate to me and ever since then I've been afraid of rejection or asking for what I want or I felt dirty because of that and that shows up in this particular image and the therapist might stop. You might do a month's worth of work on that before you even move on to the next mm. piece of the mm. workbook. So that's the part of it that is unknown and is emergent. Um, I, had a, I had a client I was working with this on, <clears throat> and we were just at the beginning, um, and he was kind of looking through it and saying, I don't think I'm going to color the pictures or do that piece, but I'll do everything right. else, right? Uh -huh. When I asked him what that was about, um, really there was, and, and he came back acknowledging, like, I like to be in control of sex all the time because what mm. if I'm not? Mm. And those pictures kind of felt a little like out of control, kind of right. moving into the unconscious. And obviously he wouldn't be able to control what he felt or what came up. But he also started to grieve um, mm. needing to be always in control of sexuality right. and not being able to just let go and let something happen. Right. And that, that's beautiful. So just the simple act of coloring feels too threatening to somebody. Mm -hmm. And so to give them permission, like with their own sexuality, well, you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you do do that, what if you color a part of the image or use one color or do it in the way, and this again comes down to, you know, when Alan Shore talks about affectively tolerable doses, um, but we're dosing in possibility here. It's not about taking a sledgehammer to anybody's defenses um, and seeing like what what does it feel like to be a little tiny bit out of control? 
Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like for you? So they're staying also within their regulatory capacities. You know, we don't want people in a hyper aroused or hypo aroused state where they can't function. Right. Um, and surely if it's a, if they're having that reaction to just coloring an image, what's it going to be like when they start to make eye contact with somebody that they love and are close to and want to have sex with? How threatening is that going to be? How out of control is that going to feel? Right. So, yeah. so with that, it being so integrative and evocative, where in recovery is this the right step? Well, I think that, again, is really up to the judgment of the therapist and the client together. You know, it's funny when people come to Center for Healthy Sex, um, either for individual therapy or for our intensive programs, sometimes they show up with erotic intelligence. And I, you know, my, I sort of laugh internally and think, you know what, you really need to put that book away <laughs> because I, you have a lot more work to do before you even get to that book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like the alcoholic who just stops drinking and is a dry drunk. Uh-huh. So we really want to recognize that there are phases to recovery for people and for changing the brain and the autonomic nervous system and that people when they're ready to really look at their sexuality they have to have a stable base so for some it might not be eight months or a year Um, i have a group right now where i propose to the group that we go through this book um, as a group and one of the people who's been in that group for a long time four or five years said i don't want to do this Mm -hmm. You know, I've given up certain sexual behaviors to be in my marriage, and my wife's made it very clear that she does not want to engage in those behaviors, and that's part of the deal for me to be in this marriage because I love her deeply. It's the healthiest relationship he's ever been in. Uh, They have a child together, and he said, I'm not willing to jeopardize that and open that can of worms for myself again. So I just don't want to go there. And I have to honor that. Right, right. And another person who's a year in said, I'm still dealing with my own self-deception, the way that I lie to myself all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I lie to my partner and I don't even know I'm doing it. I don't trust myself to start thinking about sex. Right now, I'm just so grateful that I'm having sex with my wife again um, because, you know, there's been so much destruction as a result of his behavior for like 15, 20 years that she's just been able to trust him again to be sexual, that it's not the right time for this couple to start saying, so, you know, if we were to really play in the realm of the erotic, what would we like? <laughs> it's too threatening for, yeah. for everybody right now. Mm-hmm. So we want to, as therapists, I think we want to be mindful about not colluding with fear and defenses against change and saying, okay, we never have to look at your sexuality. Mm-hmm. Or being so sex positive that we're way out in front of the client saying, but you have to do this because you're limiting your sexuality. Right. Both of those things are unethical. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and what a, what a potential for a great corrective experience there is this collaborative, I'm ready for this, I want this, this is how far I want to go with it experience. Because mm-hmm. I, I know most of my clients, their introduction to sex was not a collaborative, mindful no. thing. Right. That's right. It was not. It was coerced or it was forced upon them or, mm-hmm. um, or they were heartily shamed about it, mm-hmm. um, all of that. So, you know, just the workbook itself, like buying the workbook is the intervention. Mm-hmm. It's like it starts working before people even 
work on it. Just like your client who looked at it and said, "Uh oh, I don't know if I can do this." Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I think we're negligent in not challenging people to um, take some look at what's true for them, mm-hmm. because there's. This narrow band of sex, which David Snarch talks about, what he calls leftover sex. You know, there's what I won't do and what you won't do, and then we do what's left over. Mm. Right. And, you know, leftovers are fine, you know, one day a week, but nobody <laughs> them every day. Right. <laughs> what's for dinner tonight? Leftover meatloaf. At I some love. point, you have to have the real meal, right? I That's love. right. Because there are more nutrients in the real meal right. also. Bacteria starts to grow on leftovers after a certain number of days. Yeah. So really challenging people around their sexual limitations and what they're afraid of. And what does it mean about them if they admit to themselves that they actually like something? And for partners especially, because you know, I'm sure both of you have heard this before and partners listening have had this experience where you know, they feel like their sexuality was you know, quite um, you know, um, experimental and free and um, you know, they were interested in their sexuality. And with the advent of the sex addiction, they feel so violated that they shut down. And they say, I don't want to give that to my partner. Um, Or I'm afraid if I show that part of myself, then he's going to want to act out or, you know, she's going to want to do that with somebody else. And so there's an enormous amount of fear in the system, in the body, um, about taking those risks again. So um, we have to be gentle with these matters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, just walking through the workbook and simply asking the questions, right? So often we're, whether we're afraid of being politically correct or we don't want to appear rigid and sex negative, we don't even ask the question, right? Yeah. And then it doesn't give people an opportunity to explore their answer, to own their answer. Right. And that's what we're doing, right? We're not trying to get them to come to a certain outcome. We're just right. asking questions that they have an opportunity to fill the answer to. Right. And I think the therapist's curiosity from a non-judgmental, non-agenda place is the greatest gift we can give clients in any modality of therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, A colleague of mine wrote her dissertation on um, marriage family therapists. And I don't remember the study exactly, but it was, oh, it was about therapist comfortability in talking about sex and sexuality. And it was really shocking to see how few marriage family therapists did not even bring up the topic of sexuality. Um, and after her study and after her workshop and education, they were much more comfortable, much more inclined to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So we're negligent if we don't even bring it up. Right. You know, it's like if somebody comes in and their hair was brown and then the next week they came in as a brunette and you don't ask, gee, or notice, hey, your hair color changed. I'm curious. What had you doing it? Why do you like brown? What, how often have you thought about being a brunette? You know, really self-reflexive questions that open space for the person to better know themselves. Mm-hmm. I think, Jackie, that's what you're saying. Our responsibility is to just open the space and ask the question, not to have an agenda one way or the right. other. Right, mm-hmm. right. And to me, I think that's a really critical ingredient in using this workbook personally is uh, working it with a therapist that you trust to be able to do that. You know, I, I, go through the, I go through the list of therapists I've had personally, and I can think of one that I would do this with. Mm. Um, wow. And I, yeah, and I, I think, say something. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's important in the decision in, in going into this and exploring that part of your sexuality. You need to know that 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 therapist knows that their job is to open the space for you, not to interject into that space. Right, right, because the therapist's own issues are going to get triggered. And when mm -hmm. I um, taught this uh, workbook or introduced it really to the CSAC community in May, somebody very astutely in the audience said, don't you think we should take ourselves through this workbook first? And it's like, of course you should. Right. Mm -hmm. You got to look at your own sexual issues. You will be sitting there and you'll have judgments that you don't even know that you're having. Right. And that registers to the client. Um, and every therapist, whether they're working in the realm of sexuality or not, is going to evoke, there are shame dynamics in the psychotherapeutic dyad, whether people think there are or they're not. Mm -hmm. um, there have been plenty of studies and books written about this. And it's not that we're doing it explicitly. We don't even know what we're doing lots of times, mm -hmm. how things are registering to people. So we do have to make sure that we're sexually fit as best as we can. Um, I was teaching in um, one of the modules because I teach healthy sexuality in the CSAT training. And one of the women raised her hands and said, you just shamed my favorite form of sex, which is vanilla sex. Mm -hmm. Now, I was mortified by that because I was not intending to shame that. I was talking about um, how there's so much more to sex than vanilla sex. And just the act of saying that, and I probably said something else I don't remember, but she was feeling, you know, um, object, colonized and shamed that sh this is a normative form of sex for her that she quite enjoys and she's not interested in anything else. And who was I to come in and tell her that, um, you know, her sexuality wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. And that was really instructive for me. I took that to heart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I appreciated when you introduced this to the CSAC community in May, you talked about the importance of stopping and having those conversations when that inadvertent shame does come up. Right. And yeah. how that's a, I think that's a big part of um, claiming and defining and, and planning your healthy sexuality as you interact with other people about what's happening between the two of you. Right. And it's incumbent upon the therapist to notice that the client's demeanor just changed mm -hmm. um, or they just retracted or their eyes went down because they're regulating themselves to say, uh oh, what just happened there? Mm -hmm. you know and certainly what was my part in it right and i think what happens for me is that because i'm so conversant in the langu language of sexuality i forget that everybody else isn't yeah yeah right so i'm using language that might be shocking to somebody's system um because i'm so free with it and you know sometimes i notice people get up from my couch and they're sweating Mm -hmm. I think, oh, right, I, need to, right, I need to attend to that. That was a sweaty conversation for them. For me, it was not. It was just, we were just dipping our toes into the water. It was a Tuesday morning conversation. <laughs> that's right. And so that's where we have to be careful about being ahead of the client. Yeah. Um, and also, if there are clients listening to this, to remember that you get to stop the therapist and say, wait a minute, this is too much or too fast, or I'm not mm -hmm. ready for this conversation. Mm -hmm. Or you just said something that really made my blood pressure go up yeah mm -hmm. which is such great practice to then take into the moment of sexuality yes yeah okay. to be able to say wait a minute hold on right I thought I was on board kind of like you were talking about the webinar on mm -hmm. consent I now kind of freaked out a little bit can we right you know 
can we pay attention to that? Right. And I think this is true for men and women. So often women will have sex with their partners when they're not really ready to have sex. They haven't fully lubricated. It hurts a little bit. I'm not talking about pelvic pain or, you know, like a really egregious behaviors, but they're not quite there and they don't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. So they're really lying to themselves. Yeah. Um, and then they can say, well, my partner is a brute or he doesn't consider me. But where is your part in being, you know, right. saying stop? Or Which I need also else here. goes back to the physical, really knowing your body. Right. And being able to sense when your body is physically prepared for sex. Exactly. So that's a great um, way of bringing it back to how this is all integrates. Um, so our psychological ties into our sexual and vice versa. We just can't escape um, that this is a mind-body, um, you know, soul uh, proposition going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this is such uh, great work, Alex, and I'm really excited to see how this impacts our our recovery community. Me too. Um, and to see what comes out of it. Yeah, well, I really appreciate both of you, um, you know, kind of going out on a limb and being willing to talk about this because I think this is important for people in drug and alcohol recovery also mm-hmm. um, because they suffer from the same sort of, you know, dysfunctional family systems that most of our sex addicts suffer from, you know, at the very least mm-hmm. neglect and emotional abuse. Um, and I don't mean that lightly, least, um, you know, it's not always physical or sexual abuse, but um, all people in recovery would stand to, um, you know, serve their recovery and their healing by healing their sexuality also. Yeah. Right. So to our listeners, the book's available on Amazon. Um, if you're listening to this and thinking, I need some of that, take that for, <laughs> do that first intervention and buy the book. Um, right. See where that takes you. Um, but thank you very much, Alex, for spending time with us today and, and okay. uh, talking about your work. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that your story matters. And remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to, re- to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.